Psalm 100, a psalm of thanksgiving. Make a joyful shout to the Lord, all you lands. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come before his presence with singing. Know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who has made us and not we ourselves. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. Enter into his gates with thanksgiving and into his courts with praise. Be thankful to him and bless his name for the Lord is good. His mercy is everlasting and his truth endures to all generations. We got a sermon today from Exodus 21. It's verses 12 through 27. It's entitled Keeping Violence in Check. And uh, this is laws and only laws. I have one very small picture of Christ and it's relating to something from another uh, passage in the Bible, one verse. And other than that, it's just laws. It's understanding the structure of the laws in Israel. And uh, I, I do think that you'll enjoy it despite no pictures of Christ. But um, uh, let's see here, 21, 12 through 27. Verse 12, he who strikes a man so that he dies shall surely be put to death. However, if he does not lie in wait, but God delivered him into his hand, then I will appoint for you a place where he may flee. But if a man acts with premeditation against his neighbor to kill him by treachery, you shall take him from my altar that he may die. And he who strikes his father or his mother shall surely be put to death. He who kidnaps a man and sells him, or if he is found in his hand, shall surely be put to death. And he who curses his father or his mother shall surely be put to death. If men contend with each other and one strikes the other with a stone or with his fist, and he does not die but is confined to his bed, if he rises again and walks about outside with his staff, then he who struck him shall be acquitted. He shall only pay for the loss of his time and shall provide for him to be thoroughly healed. And if a man beats his male or female servant with a rod so that he dies under his hand, he shall surely be punished. Notwithstanding, if he remains alive a day or two, he shall not be punished, for he is his property. If men fight and hurt a woman with child so that she gives birth prematurely, yet no harm follows, he shall surely be punished accordingly as the woman's husband imposes on him, and he shall pay as the judges determine. Verse 23, but if any harm follows, then you shall give life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. If a man strikes the eye of his male or female servant and destroys it, he shall let him go free for the sake of his eye. And if he knocks out the tooth of his male or female servant, he shall let him go free for the sake of his tooth. I uh, used to preach down at, uh, or not preach, I used to, uh, you know, petition or whatever you call it, demonstrate down in front of Planned Parenthood every Friday. I did that for a couple years, and I'd always begin with one of those verses. Uh, I think it was verse 21 or whatever. Uh, I used to open the Bible and read that out loud in front of Planned Parenthood, and uh, then I'd just stand there and read the Psalms or something, and uh, we'd hope for somebody would come by and want to know about Jesus and about saving babies. I don't have time for that anymore, but uh, it's something that is near and dear to my own heart. Now, today we're going to look, uh, continue to look into the law of Moses and the many fine points which it details. They were given to a people to keep them as a properly functioning society. But of course, such laws are only as good as the obedience of the people. And the obedience of the people can only be expected if the punishments for infractions are detailed and then executed. And so we will see what was expected of Israel concerning some things which may still apply today and some things which we think are not only outdated, but even barbarous. But such is not the case. In the end, I think you will see the logic behind each precept that we examine. Our text verse for today comes from 1 Timothy 1. It's verses 8 through 11. Paul writes to Timothy, But we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Knowing this, that the law was not made for a righteous person, but for the lawless and insubordinate, for the godly and for sinners, for the unholy and profane, for murderers of fathers and fathers and murderers of mothers, for manslayers, for fornicators, for sodomites, for kidnappers, for liars, for perjurers, and if there is anything, any other thing that is contrary to sound doctrine, according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God, which was committed to my trust. Paul says that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. And in fact, it is only good if it is used in this way. 
The trouble with us is that we often use it in unintended ways, be it the law of Moses or the law of our land. When this occurs, societal breakdown is inevitable. Let us remember this and attempt to use common sense as we evaluate the Bible and apply it to our own lives in the place where we live and under the government which we are obligated to. Everything in context, just as the Bible would teach us. It's all to be found in his superior word. And so let's turn to that precious word once again, and may God speak to us through his word today, and may his glorious name ever be praised. Our first thought today is punishable by death, verses 12 through 17. Verse 12, he who strikes a man so that he dies shall surely be put to death. The law concerning violence committed to another follows directly after the law concerning slaves. This is not haphazardly stuck here, but intent is seen in its placement. As Kyle notes, he says, still higher than personal liberty, however, is life itself, the right of existence and personality. And the infliction of injury upon this was not only prohibited, but to be followed by punishment corresponding to the crime. And as we will see, there's a difference in how a slave is treated and how a free man is treated. Thus, the law of the slave from the previous section is further refined here in this section concerning violence to another. For now, though, the section begins with just a general statement concerning the striking of another which leads to death. From it, various distinctions will be made between murder, manslaughter, etc., which will all be detailed. There are two main verses concerning killing another which have already been seen in the Bible's pages. The first came just after the flood of Noah. In Genesis chapter 9, we read these words which make a distinction between the life of an animal and human life which is found in the world. Here's what it says. So God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And the fear of you and the dread of you shall be on every beast of the earth, on every bird of the air, and on all that move on the earth, and on all the fish of the sea. They are given into your hand. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. I have given you all things, even as the green herbs. But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. Surely for your life I will demand a reckoning. From the hand of every beast I will require it, and from the hand of every man. From the hand of every man's brother I will require the life of man. Verse 6, whoever sheds man's blood... By man, his blood shall be shed, for he is in the image of God. He, I'm sorry, for in the image of God, he made man. And as for you, be fruitful and multiply, bring forth abundantly in the earth and multiply in it. What is implied in Genesis 9 is that the killing of an animal is not murder. Words concerning the care of animals are found within the Bible, but the killing of animals cannot be considered murder. Unfortunately, in some religions of the world, in the environmental wacko left, and in the minds of even many weak-minded Christians, confusion over this does exist. It is for the care of man that the Bible's attention is directed. And so, once again, in Exodus 20, we read these words, you shall not murder. That is explicit. And yet, it leaves as much unsaid as it reveals. What the definition of murder is still requires more analysis from the Bible, including the verses of today's passage. Further, though the command is given, it doesn't detail any penalties for violating the command. Laws which are not enforced by penalties are rather pointless. They remain inoperative because there's no accountability for a violation of the law. All we need to do is look at Barack Obama's America today, and this is more than evident. Only anarchy can result and only anarchy is resulting because we have laws and they are not being enforced. Now the penalty for murder is given here. The murderer shall be put to death. The reason for this is explicitly stated in Numbers chapter 35. So you shall not pollute the land where you are for blood defiles the land and no atonement can be made for the land for the blood that is shed on it except by the blood of him who shed it. Murder is bloodshed, and bloodshed defiles the land. Without the taking of the life of the offender, there is no atonement for the bloodshed, and when there is no atonement, then the Lord will respond in judgment. Think of the guilt America bears right now.
because of the bloodshed which is all over our country, which is not being prosecuted, and especially the bloodshed of the unborn. What is implied in this is that there is an, this here is an eternal standard of God. This means that when we fail to punish capital crimes in our nations, even today, we heap up guilt upon ourselves. But Numbers gives more details concerning the murderer. Here's what it says. Whoever kills a person, the murderer shall be put to death on the testimony of witnesses. But one witness is not sufficient testimony against a person for the death penalty. Moreover, you shall take no ransom for the life of a murderer who is guilty of death, but he shall surely be put to death. More than one witness is required in order to find a sentence of guilt concerning murder. And if a person is found guilty of murder, no amount of ransom is sufficient to redeem the offender from the penalty of death. His life is forfeit. As you can see, there are protections and there are prohibitions associated with this crime. Verse 13, however, if he did not lie in wait, it would be inappropriate to have the same punishments for different levels of homicide. The willful murder of another bears one type of penalty. The unintentional killing of another is to be handled in another way. The word for lie in wait here is tzada. It's used for the first of just three times in the Bible, and this is exactly what it means. It means that someone willfully and with pre-planning came to destroy another person. Verse 13 going on, but God delivered him into his hand. In contrast to a purposeful action, it says, Veha Elohim ina leyado, but the God allowed into his hand. It's an interesting set of words. First, there is an article in front of the word God, the God. This is speaking of the one true God who has divinely purposed all things. The article is important because Elohim can mean more than just God. Elohim can be judges or spirits or even false gods. Ha Elohim is the God. He is the one who has predestined all things according to his will. In this case, the tragedy was allowed to occur by him for his own sovereign purposes. The rare word translated as deliver is anah. It is the first of just six times it's going to be used in the Bible, and it means to befall. The creator God allowed the person to die at the hands of another. The implication was that this was a part of his purposes from creation itself. Verse 13 continues, Then I will appoint for you a place where he may flee. The one guilty of unintentional manslaughter will have a place appointed to where he may flee. Such a place is known as a city of refuge, and the law concerning it is detailed in Numbers 35, verses 9 through 28. These cities of refuge were placed throughout Israel so that the offender could flee quickly to such a city to have his life spared. Because he had killed, even though unintentionally, the near of kin of the deceased had the right and even the obligation to kill him based on Genesis chapter 9. However, if the offender were to reach the city of refuge, the near kin had no right to take his life. If at any time he left that city of refuge, the near kin could pursue him and he could take him. However, at the death of the high priest of Israel, all cases of manslaughter were forgiven and the near kin no longer had a right to kill the offender. He instead could return to his home without any fear. What a picture of Jesus Christ, our true high priest, who removes our guilt through his death. It is a lesson that only through death can the guilt of shedding of blood be atoned. Thank God for Jesus Christ. Verse 14, but if a man acts with premeditation against his neighbor, this verse stands in contrast to the previous one. Instead of not lying in wait in order to kill, this person acts with premeditation. The word is zud, and it means arrogantly, or proudly, or rebelliously. Zud is the word which describes the sound of boiling. Zud, zud, zud. And so it is a metaphor for being boiled up and thus prideful. Instead of the previous example of innocent intent, this example is one of true guilt. Verse 14 going on, to kill him by treachery. The word for treachery is ormah. This is the first of only five uses of it in the Bible. 
It indicates craftiness or prudence. And it comes from the verb arom, which means to act craftily. This then is said in contrast to the words of verse 13, which said, but God delivered him into his hand. Verse 14 going on. You shall take him from my altar that he may die. The altar is the place of mercy. When one first came into the tabernacle, they would come to the altar of burnt sacrifice. The altar is where sin is expiated, where mercy was granted, and from which a propitious relationship was reestablished with God. Charles Ellicott, citing several ancient sources, says this, In most parts of the world, a scruple was felt about putting criminals to death when, when once they had taken sanctuary, and those who did were regarded as accursed. The Mosaic law regarded this scruple as superstition and refused to sanction it. A person who had willfully and intentionally killed another was not to find mercy, even at this place of mercy. Thus, this is the antithesis of the words of verse 13, which said, Then I will appoint for you a place where he may flee. If the place where restoration with God was not available, then there would be no other place that he could flee to. He was to be taken from the altar and put to death. To understand this from an actual account found right in the Bible, we're going to take a brief diversion and we're going to go to the account of Joab, the commander of David's armies, to see this precept come to life. In 1 Kings 2, verses 5 and 6, David gave Solomon his final instructions before his death. This included a charge to bring the misdeeds of Joab back on his own head. Here's what it says. Moreover, you know also what Joab, the son of Zeruiah, did to me, and what he did to the two commanders of the armies of Israel, to Abner, the son of Ner, and Amasa, the son of Jether, whom he killed. And he shed the blood of war in peacetime, and put the blood of war on his belt that was around his waist, and on his sandals that were on his feet, Therefore, do according to your wisdom and do not let his gray hair go down to the grave in peace. The killing of Abner and Amasa were exactly what this verse in Exodus is describing. He acted on his own accord and in a prideful manner against David's orders. Zud, zud, zud. He used the death of his own brother Asahel as a pretext for killing these two men. And because of his actions, which brought a stain on David's name, David so charged Solomon. After David's death, Solomon took the requested action against Job. Here's what it says. Then news came to Joab, for Joab had defected to Adoniah through, though he had uh, not defected to Absalom. So Joab fled to the tabernacle of the Lord and took hold of the horns of the altar. And King Solomon was told, Joab has fled to the tabernacle of the Lord. There he is by the altar. Then Solomon sent Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, saying, go strike him down. So Benaiah went to the tabernacle of the Lord and said to him, Thus says the king, Come out. And he said, No, but I will die here. And Benaiah brought back the word to the king, saying, Thus said Joab, and thus he answered me. Then the king said to him, Do as he said, and strike him down and bury him, that you may take away from me and from the house of my father the innocent blood which Joab shed. So the Lord will return his blood on his head. And because he struck down two men more righteous and better than he, and killed them with the sword, Abner, the son of Ner, the commander of the army of Israel, and Amasa, the son of Jether, the commander of the army of Judah, though my father David did not know it. Their blood shall therefore return upon the head of Joab and upon the head of his descendants forever. But upon David and his descendants, upon his house and his throne, there shall be peace forever from the Lord. So Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, went up and struck and killed him, and he, he was buried in his own house in the wilderness. Then, or I'm sorry, the king put Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, in his place over the army, and the king put Zadok, the priest, in the place of Abiathar. Joab died without mercy at the horns of the altar for the willful murder of innocent men. Zud, zud, zud. Thus the command of Exodus 21, verse 14, was fulfilled in him, with the exception of first removing him from the altar. As the Geneva Bible states, the holiness of the place should not defend the murderer. Verse 15, And he who strikes his father or his mother shall surely be put to death. Some scholars try to define this striking as one that leads to death of the parents. This is incorrect. When death is associated with such an action, it is explicitly stated. 
This command can mean nothing less than a willful strike against the parents is a capital crime, regardless if they are seriously harmed or die or not. In fact, Kyle notes that the murder of parents is not mentioned at all as not likely to occur and hardly conceivable. Such an act would be regarded as so vile that it is left out of scripture entirely. The reason for the harshness of this command is that the parents are God's vice regents for the children. As they have been placed in this position, an attack against them is an implicit attack against God who has placed them there. Verse 16, he who kidnaps a man and sells him, or if he is found in his hand, shall surely be put to death. This law is general in nature, and it appears to apply to any kidnapping of a man. However, in Deuteronomy 24, it is said to apply explicitly to fellow Israelites. Here's what it says. If a man is found kidnapping any of his brethren of the children of Israel and mistreats him or sells him, then the kidnapper shall not die and you shall put away the evil from among you. In this verse in Deuteronomy, instead of man being kidnapped, it says nefesh, or soul. Thus, it is inclusive of women. Therefore, the kidnapping of any man is explicitly forbidden in all circumstances, while the kidnapping of any male or female Israelite is forbidden. Paul, in 1 Timothy chapter 1, brings this law back to mind without regard to Jew or Gentile. Therefore, it appears that the intent is that kidnapping was not to be condoned in any form. However, in the kidnapping of an Israelite and mistreating them or selling them off, an especially grievous thing would occur. The Israelites were free people unless they were sold into slavery. To force them into slavery without regard to the law would then deprive them of their freedoms, which the law itself gave to them. Think of it, what they're doing over there now with the Muslims. They're enslaving Christians, okay? Maybe people find that acceptable, but when you enslave somebody and then force them to convert into Islam, now you have deprived them of their rights under Christ, and the next generation will never come to know Christ. So it's kind of the same idea that we're getting right here with this. People are being deprived. It's like a double sin against somebody, in other words. Verse 17, And he who curses his father or his mother shall surely be put to death. Cursing one's parents is placed on the same level as striking a parent because it stems from the same attitude of the heart. God's appointed authority and his personal majesty are violated when the parents are violated. He ordained the parents of the child and therefore he is cursed implicitly in the curse. Thus it is seen in the Bible that the cursing of parents and blasphemy against God are the two sins of the tongue which are to be punished with death. Here's uh, an account of that from Leviticus chapter 24. Then you shall speak to the children of Israel saying, whoever curses his God shall bear his sin and whoever blasphemies the name of the Lord shall surely be put to death. All the congregations shall certainly stone him, the stranger as well as him who is born in the land. When he blasphemies the name of the Lord, he shall be put to death. Cursing your parents, cursing God, the two sins of the tongue. The Lord's care of the honoring of the parents is so prominent that in the book of Proverbs, we read these ominous words. Whoever curses his father or his mother, his lamp will be put out in deep darkness. Man is filled with violent tendencies, and when acted upon, he must be corrected. Whether through punishment or tender mercies, if he isn't restrained, all of society is affected. To kill another is to deprive him of his life. A son will be left fatherless when his dad is killed. A woman who loses her husband is no longer a wife when someone takes him away, when his blood is spilled. And so we are given laws in order to restrain and punishments to ensure the laws we do obey. With these measures, peace in society we maintain and the people are free to enjoy life from day to day. Our second thought today is when punishment is due. This is verses 18 through 21. Verse 18, if men contend with each other and one strikes the other with a stone or with his fist, people fight as people do. In this verse, there is no sense of premeditation like there was in verse 14. There was simply a quarrel which resulted in a fight. The term with a stone or with his fist is intended to show this. A person always has a fist available and stones are likewise pretty much everywhere. Having a knife or some other weapon could imply premeditation. Zud, zud, zud. 
but the fist or a stone could not be considered things you would use if you had evil intent in advance. And so unless death resulted, which would then be considered murder under any circumstances, another avenue would be pursued in executing justice. The word for fist here is used in a surprisingly sparse manner in the Bible. It is ergolf, and this is the first of but two times that it will be seen in the entire Bible. The other is in Isaiah 58, verse 4. Verse 18 continues, And he does not die, but is confined to his bed. There is a reason for this specificity. The law required an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. However, in this case, such a law was neither practical nor was it feasible. Practically, it would serve no useful purpose for the offended person. Feasibly, it could not be guaranteed that an in-kind punishment would result. To punch the offender or to crack him over the head with a stone could kill him. Thus, the punishment would not fit the crime. Instead, it would be greater than the offense. Or, instead of being confined to his bed, he may only be knocked out for 10 minutes or so and wake up with a headache. Thus, the punishment would be less than the offense. Verse 19, if he rises again and walks about outside with his staff. A second damage is recorded. The first is being confined to bed. This is rising, but needing a staff. The word for staff here is mishinah. This is its first of 12 times to be found in the Bible, and the most famous is certainly the comforting staff of the 23rd Psalm. It is a literal staff which he must use to support himself. But despite this, verse 19, then he who struck him shall be acquitted. What this means is that he would be acquitted of blood guilt. The man may die sometime afterwards, be it soon or many years from now, but the bloodshed was not to be imputed to him. He had healed sufficiently to prove that any later death was not connected to that incident. In such a case, justice would be served in another way. Verse 19 going on. He shall only pay for the loss of his time, and he shall provide for him to be thoroughly healed. This was such a notable idea that since it was prescribed within the law of Israel, it is spread out to many, many other societies. A society does not benefit from the death of its people. And so rather than executing a citizen for such a crime, but to ensure that he is restrained in the future and that the offended party is taken care of, this marvelous provision was commanded. Verse 20, and if a man beats his male or female servant with a rod so that he dies under his hand, he shall surely be punished. This verse on the surface and to our modern sensibilities may seem harsh or even inappropriate, but it's actually a protection for the slave which had never been seen before and continued to not be seen in the ancient world. According to the Dictionary of Roman and Greek Antiquities, for the slaves in Rome, and this is many years later, the master could treat the slave as he pleased, could sell him, punish him, and put him to death. However, this was not the case in Hebrew society. First, the beating is noted for male and female alike. Both sexes were expected to be treated with equal fairness. Secondly, the word for rod here is not the same as the previous verse. This word is shevet. This is literally a stick used for punishing or for writing or for fighting, ruling, walking on, and so on. In this context, it is what is used for discipline. In the Proverbs, it is used in exactly this manner. And everyone here should know this so that uh, we can treat our children properly. He who spares his rod hates his son, but he who loves him disciplines him promptly. The striking of a slave with such a rod was used for correction. In fact, a rebellious slave could be corrected in no other way. Therefore, if a slave were to die from such punishment, it wasn't handled as a case of murder. The punishment is not specified, but if death were mandated, it would have said that death was due, and it does not. The intent of a master to kill his slave could not be readily assumed, because there was a monetary value associated with such a slave. It would be contrary to assume that a slave owner intended to kill his slave and thus destroy his own wealth. Therefore, the law sided with the slave owner. Having said this, the law here will be further defined in Leviticus, and it will show that Hebrews were to be exempt from such harsh service. Here's what it says. And if one of your brethren who dwells by you becomes poor, meaning a Hebrew, and sells himself to you, you shall not compel him to serve as a slave. 
as a hired servant and a sojourner, he shall be with you and he shall serve you until the year of Jubilee. And then he shall depart from you, he and his children with him and shall return to his own family. He shall return to the possession of his fathers for they are my servants whom I brought out of the land of Egypt. They shall not be sold as slaves. You shall not rule over him with rigor, but you shall fear God. And as for your male and female slaves whom you may have from the nations that are around you, from them you may buy male and female slaves. Moreover, you may buy the children of the strangers who dwell among you and their families who are with you, which they begat in your land, and they shall become your property, and you may take them as an inheritance for your children after you to inherit them as a possession. They shall be your permanent slaves. But regarding your brethren, the children of Israel, you shall not rule over one another with vigor. Verse 21, notwithstanding, if he remains alive a day or two, he shall not be punished for he is his property. The slave is the property of the owner. If his slave needed a good beating in order to become submissive, even if that meant lost productivity, then the punishment was to be the loss of the productivity for the owner and a painful lesson for the slave. The word for property here is kesef. It literally means silver and thus implicitly money. The owner's wealth is tied up in the slave and therefore the slave rights are tied up in the rod of the owner and they go no further unless death results. In all, the laws given here are not only fair and just, they're exceptional for a world which had no such prescriptions before. They protected the rights of both master and slave with fairness while maintaining human dignity and established lines of authority. How often have we hurt one another with evil intent? A sudden angry burst which sets our soul on fire and we lash out with our fists until our rage is spent. We live our lives walking on such a tightened wire. The law is good for it reminds us to keep our cool. Without it, many would be unrestrained in society. But even the law itself is rejected by many a fool and they act towards their fellow man with great impropriety. For them, punishment is necessary, this is certain. For some, it might be 40 lashes or five years in jail. But for others, it might be time to draw in the curtain and then to put the top on the box and secure it with the final nail. Our third thought today is justice in the face of harm. Verses 22 through 27. Verse 22, if men fight and hurt a woman with child so that she gives birth prematurely, yet no harm follows, he shall surely be punished accordingly as the woman's husband imposes on him and he shall pay as the judges determine. This is one of the most important verses in the entire Bible for understanding the nature of the unborn. I hope you'll listen carefully. In our world today, almost no consideration is given to the rights of the unborn. And those that are given are both convoluted and often manipulated. And I'm going to say this openly because people are watching on YouTube right now. If you vote Democrat, I would ask you to listen very carefully. Within just the past few weeks, the Supreme Court of New York determined that an unborn child has no rights at all because the law doesn't consider them as people. Their law may not, but God's law does explicitly. A first note is that the woman is said to be with child. The word is hara, and it means exactly that. She has conceived. The attention is given to the fact that she has a baby in her womb. It's not to her. She is already alive and protected by the laws of Israel. The focus is on the unborn. Secondly, it notes that the woman is hurt and gives birth prematurely. Again, the focus is not on the woman, but on the child. What will happen to the child? The term, yet no harm follows, is speaking of the child in the womb, not the mother who bears the child. This is obvious on the surface because if it was concerning the wife, it would be superfluous to have mentioned the fact that she was pregnant. Listen carefully here. The word for prematurely here is yeladeha. The word yeled means child here. Whether born or unborn, it's the same word. God makes no distinction. No distinction is made between whether you are a born child or you are an unborn child, according to the Bible. But the word here is plural, yeladeha, or children, and thus it is an indication of indefiniteness. Could there be more than one child? If so, then the death of either or both or any carries the same offense. Thus, it cannot be speaking of the woman, but of the unborn. 
to add to the emphasis here, three words have to be noted. The first word is the word for harm. It is ason. This verse and the next two have the last two of five times it will be seen in the Bible. Then there is the word punished, which is anash. In this verse are the first two of nine times it will be used in the Bible. And finally, there is the word for judges, which is palil. This is a rare and a poetic term used for the first of just three times. But as others note, this word doesn't make any sense because the fine was imposed by the husband, unless we're being told that judges must arbitrate the claim. But that is unsaid, and it is only a presupposition. However, the Greek Old Testament translated out of the Hebrew into the Greek before the coming of Christ doesn't mention judges. It, is, it just simply says that he shall give by means of what is fit. Therefore, it is more probable that instead of the Hebrew word for judges, the word for untimely birth, which is very similar, is what is being referred to. As Jewish rabbinical sentiment, unfortunately and incorrectly, has been that this harm is only referring to the woman and not to the unborn, it makes all the sense in the world that they would find the word judges more satisfactory than the word for untimely birth. Regardless of this final word, though, the context and the intent is clear. The child in the womb is considered a human being and is the focus, and it is focused directly on him if harm is received. Thus, verse 23 provides the penalty when harm follows. Verse 23, but if harm follows, then you shall give life for life. The focus has been on the child. Was it born alive and in good shape, or did the child die? We must remember that this entire section we're looking at has been based on the words of verse 12. He who strikes a man so that he dies shall surely be put to death. From that point on, what constitutes a capital offense has been outlined. In the same way, the same words are found in Leviticus 24:17, which are given based on the stoning of a blasphemer who was the son of a Jewish mother and an Egyptian father. Thus, the tenets are given for Jews and for Gentiles, for men and for women, and those out of the womb and those in the womb. The Lord's protections and his judgments follow through to all, including what today we so arbitrarily call a fetus, when the unborn is harmed and it dies, the offender's life is forfeit. A life is demanded for the loss of the life. And as I said, we have killed over 50 million babies in America. And we bear that blood guilt. Every single person that has committed an abortion should be killed for having killed that child. That is what the law demands. Now, of course, we're not doing that. But because we're not doing that, we are building up blood guilt in this nation. And the Lord is going to judge this nation because of it. And I'm going to go even further with this. I'm going to take it to another extreme. And I do not believe that this is a, 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 manipulating the Bible at all. The Democrat Party platform of the United States of America is abortion on demand. If you don't know that, go read it. It is abortion on demand. And that means that every single person that is on the Democrat ticket every one of them, from the president all the way down to the local tax collector, if they are a Democrat, have signed that platform. And therefore, they are guilty of blood because they support that on-demand abortion. This is not a part of the Republican platform. It's not a part of other platforms, but it is a part of the Democrat platform. And what does that mean? If you vote for a Democrat, you are guilty of blood guilt of the unborn because you are voting for somebody that has signed that document which says that this is our principal tenant. Murder. Okay, so I'd like every person here to soberly consider that. You are guilty implicitly of murder, blood guilt, for signing, for voting for a Democrat. Better you just stay home than not vote, or I'm sorry, than actively vote for a Democrat. Just stay home. Because if not, God will judge you. I am absolutely certain of this. Verse 24, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. These words form the earliest known record of what we call the lex talionis, or the law of like for like, known to man anywhere. It was later incorporated into other societies. Though seemingly harsh, they're actually as much a curb on retribution as they are a means of punishing an offender. No greater punishment was to be meted out than that which had been inflicted. Thus, the punisher was not unduly or overly punished. After life itself, these first three are each parts of the body which can either be lost or ruined. 
If the baby were born with the loss of a foot, the one who struck the woman would forfeit his own foot. Into no shoe could he it put. If a fight between two men resulted in the loss of an eye, then the offender was to lose his eye. However, that would be a difficult pill to swallow for a man with but one eye, especially if his name were one eye guy. If a tooth was knocked out by another child at school, the offending child was to have his matching tooth knocked out. But that wouldn't be so bad if his name was Keith and he still had his baby teeth. And if a woman purposely dropped a millstone on another woman's hand, then her hand would be forfeit. One would hope she wasn't also mute or sign language would be rather difficult. She would be deaf, Beth, with no hand for us to understand. Verse 25, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. These three don't deal with specific body parts, but rather what can happen to the body through the abuse of another. The word for burn here is keveah. It's used only twice in the entire Bible, and both are here in this verse. It means a burning or a branding. It would be a painful lesson for the offender to also face what he had done to another. The word for wound is petzah. It hasn't been seen since Genesis 4, verse 23 in the account of Cain and Abel, and it will only be used eight times in the Bible. It comes from the verb patzah, which means bruising or even emasculation. If one were to harm another in this way, it was also to be done to him. And the word for stripe here is chabura. It was also last seen in Genesis 4, verse 23, at the account of Cain and Abel. And it will only be used seven times in the entire Bible. It indicates blueness or a bruise or some other type of wound. These punishments were intended as judicial measures for actual wrongs perpetrated against another. They allowed like punishment to protect the rights of the people and to keep the people restrained within the confines of society. However, by Jesus' time, they were taken as a moral precept and an imperative. They missed the spirit and the intent of the law. And because of this, Jesus corrected them on the very purpose of the law that he had given them 1,500 years earlier. Here's what he said. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but I tell you not to resist an evil person. But whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. If anyone wants to sue you and take away your tunic, let him have your cloak also. And whoever compels you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to him who asks you and from him who wants to borrow from you, do not turn away. Jesus would rather that the law be upheld while at the same time mercy would be given when it was right to give it. And even more than mercy would be grace added on top of that. Verse 26, if a man strikes the eye of his male or female servant and destroys it, he shall let him go free for the sake of his eye. Once again, the rights of the slave are highlighted. Though they are in a different category because they are property of their owners, they were to be given freedoms if the owner abused the rights that the same law granted to him. Even more, the laws applied equally to male and to female. No hint of inequality can be found in these words. However, rather than the law of like for like for the free members of a society, the slave is an exception. Because the master was a free man, it would be a societal injustice to allow for an in-kind retaliation. And so rather than like for like, they were to go out free. It is the same word which was first used in verse 2 when speaking of the freed Hebrew slave in the seventh year of their service. They were granted unconditional release because of the loss of their eye. Verse 27, our final verse of the day. And if he knocks out the tooth of his male or female servant, he shall let him go free for the sake of his tooth. Of this verse, the Geneva Bible says this. So God revenges cruelty in even the least things. What do they mean by this? The answer is that the previous verse and this verse are set in contrast to one another. The eye is looked at as the most precious of organs. The loss of the eye is considered especially trying and difficult to deal with. On the other hand, the loss of a tooth is almost normal, and it was commonly expected. And if you lost one, there were still 30-some others to use until they too fell out. And how quickly that occurred in times past before modern dental care came about. They didn't have Oral-B supersonic toothbrushes and Crest fluoride-enhanced peroxide whitening, sensitivity-eliminating, and minty-fresh-flavored toothpaste in every store in town. Rather, 
They suffered with the degradation of their teeth even from their youth. In the Song of Solomon, the king praises his young bride with these words. Your teeth are like a flock of newly shorn sheep coming up from washing, each one having a twin and not one missing. He praises her for her beautiful teeth, comparing them to a flock of newly shorn sheep that have just been washed all pearly white. But he also praises her for having all of them. It is something that would have been unusual, and so he highlights the fact for us to know. My sweet love has all of her teeth. In other words, the contrast between the eye of verse 26 and the tooth of verse 27 is given as an all-encompassing thought concerning the slave. From the most precious to the least valued, if they received harm beyond what was considered normal, they were to be set free. Now that our verses are done for the day, let's remember Jesus' words concerning the law of murder that we looked at earlier, okay? Matthew 5, verses 21 and 22 say, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be in danger of the judgment. But I tell you that whoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. Has anyone here ever been angry with his brother without a cause? It is as if you have committed murder to God. Has anyone here ever looked at another in lust? It is as if you have committed adultery in his presence. God looks beyond the externals to the very inner parts of a man, to things that we don't even know are there. And in his holiness, he must judge our sin. Can anyone here say that they are without guilt? I dare say that none of us can. But though there was a law given that condemns us, a son was given to forgive us. The law and all of its associated punishment is there to show us of our need for something else, mercy. So let me tell you about God's mercy in the giving of his son. The Bible says that we have sinned, all have sinned and all fall short of the glory of God. And it goes on to say that the wages of sin is death. We die because we have sinned. But it's not just physical death that the Bible is talking about. It's talking about spiritual death, disconnect from God the Father because of the sin in our lives. The law only magnifies this. If these laws didn't exist, it wouldn't be wrong to do any of these things. But because the law exists, we are bound to the law and it only further condemns us. Our guilt is heaped up even more. And then Jesus comes along and he tells us something like, if you just look at a woman with lust in your eye, you've committed adultery in your heart. And now we really know that we're condemned. Guys, all right. I'm not going to ask the ladies the opposite. But you understand that the law is given and it condemns. And Jesus Christ came to undo that for us, not undo the law, but to fulfill the law for us. And so that we can now be covered by his blood. He took the wrath and the punishment that we deserve after fulfilling the law. And therefore the law is set aside in Christ. He's established a new covenant with a new set of laws and a new set of ways of dealing with man. All right. Either you will be judged by God's perfect standard, which we've been going through, and it's very scary. I mean, Genesis 19, the people trembled at the, the mountain as it quaked, and then God gave those Ten Commandments. And I tell you what, as I was typing those t Ten Commandments, I was very scared. I was very scared. And I was also very thankful to God. Thank you for Jesus Christ, who fulfilled this law and then allows me to receive his righteousness while he took my punishment. And that's what the Bible offers us. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Either you get judged by this or you get mercy by, from God by Christ fulfilling it on your behalf. So I would ask that if you've never asked Jesus Christ to simply forgive you and to take away your sin guilt, do it today. And he will cover you with his shed blood and you will be considered righteous, justified in the presence of God forever. Okay, and then after that, let's try to get these other things going in our life. You know, turning away from the things that we shouldn't be doing because the New Testament is full of them. And some of the Old Testament, like murder, is an eternal standard of God. It predates the law. So we have to be careful that we uphold the law. And I want to one more time stress before I finish abortion. It is murder to God. And we cannot be held guiltless if we allow this to continue in this nation. And especially from our own you know, punchy thing or whatever down at the voting booth. We are guilty before God because of the choices that we make. Our closing verse today comes from Romans 5. It's verses 20 and 21. Moreover, the law entered that offense might abound. I just explained that. But where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. 
so that as sin reigned in death, even so grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. What a great God. Next week, Exodus 21, verses 28 through 36. The question is, what happens if an ox gores your husband or your wife? It's entitled, The Price of a Life. It's our 59th Exodus sermon. And the Lord has you exactly where he wants you. He has a good plan and a purpose for you. Even if a deep ocean lies ahead of you, he can part the waters and he can lead you through it on dry ground. So follow him and trust him and he will do marvelous things for you and through you. And think about the through you part. You've got the for you. He's going to do great things for me. But now you're saved. Let him do great things through you as you continue to study his word and apply it to your life and go out and do the things you should be doing, like telling people about Jesus Christ being the only way. I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through me. Either we're, that's true or we're sitting here wasting our time, and I can think of a lot more fun things to do than listening to me give a sermon on this, right? But this is important because he is the way, the truth, and the life. And no man can come to the Father but through him. And we want to know everything about him because of this precious word he's given to us. Poem based on our verse is called Keeping Violence in Check. He who strikes a man so that he dies, understand, shall, sure, shall, shall be put to death surely. Yet, if he did not lie in wait, but God delivered him into his hand, then I will appoint for you a place where he may flee. But if a man acts with premeditation against his neighbor to kill him by treachery, you shall take him from my altar that he may die. This is how it is to be. And he who strikes his father or his mother, so I say, shall surely be put to death. It shall be this way. He who kidnaps a man and sells him, or if he is found in his hand, shall surely be put to death. This is what my law does demand. And he who curses his father or his mother, as I tell you, shall surely be put to death. This is what you are to do. If men contend with each other and one strikes the other with a stone or with his fist, then he does not die but is confined to his bed. Yes, if the pain of death was missed. If he rises again and walks about outside with his staff, then he who struck him shall be acquitted. He is not to receive capital wrath. He shall only pay for the loss of his time, as my word has revealed, and shall provide for him to be thoroughly healed. And if a man beats his male or female servant with a rod so that he dies under his hand, he shall surely be punished, as the law does demand. Notwithstanding, if he remains alive a day or two, he shall not be punished, for he is his property. It is his right to so punish as he did do. If men fight and hurt a woman with child so that she gives birth prematurely, yet no harm follows, he shall surely be pun punished accordingly. As the woman's husband imposes on him such terms as he will set, and he shall pay the judges as they determine, whatever sentence is rendered, it shall be met. But if any harm follows, then you shall give life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. The law of the talion is the one upon the offender you shall put. If a man strikes the eye of his male or female servant and destroys it, he shall let him go free. For the sake of his eye, this poor fellow with that eye can no longer see. And if he knocks out the tooth of his male or female servant, he shall let him go free for the tooth's sake, because he now talks with a whistle or a lisp. He shall go free for the funny sound that he does now make. God is not unfair in his commands. They are set for the protection of both the offended and the offender. Israel would have well done well to comply with these demands. They would have remained in the land guarded by his splendor. But they, like us, have failed to live in a right manner, and they were punished in exile from their sweet land until he whistled for their return to his highly raised banner, and once again they are nourished from his loving hand. Let us learn, though, from the lesson of Israel, that the law can never save us. Instead, it can only condemn. This is the message that the Bible does tell. And so for the coming of Jesus, we must surely cry, Amen. Yes, Lord, you freed us from the bondage and have set us free, and now we in freedom can praise you for all eternity. Hallelujah and amen. Heavenly Father, we sure do bear a lot of guilt in this nation and in this world, but I'm more concerned about this nation at this point. We've elected profane people which have passed unjust laws. Since 1973, this nation has been slipping away, and it happens to be the same year that Roe versus Wade was passed. 
And how much worse is it getting now with the people that we've put in power that have, have just demanded that we kill your creatures, your human beings at will? How guilty we are before you. And we kill in mass quantities in our, our inner cities people just slaying one another without any regard for human life. And that all stems from the same attitude that the unborn doesn't matter and so nothing matters. Human life is just to be disregarded. Forgive us, Lord. Turn our hearts back to you before the day of judgment comes because when it does come, I am absolutely certain that if we aren't right with you, it is going to be beyond the ability for people to bear. Oh God, you are wonderful. You're loving, you're gracious, and you're merciful, but your wrath is said to be coming. The last book of the Bible is not just a mistake. It is a book with horror and dread in there, all because of our own decisions. Please help us to respect the life that you have given us and to tend for the unborn and the most, most innocent in our society. Oh God, my heart is so heavy over this. May you be praised. We thank you for this word. We thank you for all of the pictures that it gives us that are much more pleasant, but the hard things have to be dealt with as well. Help us to be firm in our resolution in those things. And we love you and we praise you and we exalt you. We commit the Lord's table to you next and we do it in Jesus' name. Amen. We get the instruction for the Lord's Supper directly from the Bible. It comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 11 where Paul wrote these words. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord, on the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And he would have given thanks over that bread. He would have said, Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu melech haolam hamotzi lechem min haaretz. Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who brings forth bread from the earth. And he broke it, and he said, Take and eat. This is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, and he would have blessed it as well. Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu olam borei peri hagafen. Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe, creator of the fruit of the vine. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. <clears throat> the body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Ghost, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. Amen. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the chance to come here and to hear your word and to study it and to know that there is mercy and there is forgiveness at the throne of grace where our Lord Jesus sits even today. Thank you for that. Wow, what a convicting thing it is to read these passages and to see them hopefully properly explained by me. I would never intentionally misrepresent your word, so I pray that my words are accurate and appropriate and that they'll be taken to heart. And we love you, and we praise you, and we exalt you. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. amen.